You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I don't know if you've noticed that the background behind me is a little bit different than it used to be. I'm going to move, so we have to to stage the house. Any of you guys have ever moved know that the real estate people come in and want you to stage the house and got to take down everything personal. So I'd take down my retirement badge and thanks from the FBI and all that off the wall and put up this kind of generic plastic plants. There's a plastic plant up there on the wall and it's... Crazy. Well, anyhow, today, as you can see, if you're on YouTube, we have our good friend Camillus Robinson from Munster, Indiana. Welcome, Cam. Gary, I'm glad to be back after so long. I know, I know. Been busy. I tell you what, folks, this dude, he has been busy. He is recording a TV show and he's writing a book and he has just got all kinds of things going. So, Cam, why don't you tell these guys about what you've been doing? You know, so... We've got this show, Inside the Chicago Outfit. It's on VPod Network, which is a startup out of Chicago. They are available on Roku. Type in VPOD, and it pops up VPod Network. We're on Friday and Saturday, 8.30 p.m. Central, 9.30 Eastern. And yeah, I'm sorry, Friday and Saturday. Really great. We're doing the Chicago Mob in the first 13 episodes are really laying the groundwork of the 50s and 60s, how things evolved. I had a lot of interesting guests and a lot of really good discussion. And we really try and get the research, tell a lot of the full story. And we'll be moving on from there. And the book, I'm really writing about the wife of a guy. We were just about done. And I will be getting it out there as soon as possible. And I'm excited about the editing phase. And as soon as I get a little bit closer, I'll have her on. We'll be making the circuit with different podcasts and things. So I'm really excited about that. She's really excited about it. I think it's an interesting take on what it was like living with a made guy, a hitman. And I'm excited for people to hear about it. But I know where I came from, Gary, and I know who put me here. (laughs) Well, Cam, you know, you were a big help to me. Now, you didn't mention who that guy was. Can you tell us? Yeah, you know what? I was lucky enough. Frank Calabrese Jr.'s wife, Lisa, we got together. We hooked up and I've interviewed her before. You can find the interview on YouTube. And we really just barely scraped the surface. She's got a hell of a lot of really interesting things to say. And I think at this point in the writing, we can go into it. But I really am excited to be working with her. She's very candid and really really detailed about a lot of what was going on and what it was like to sit across the dinner table from Frank Calabrese Sr. And I can tell you it was less than pleasant a lot of the time. (laughs) I can imagine. I've seen him on that video on YouTube where he's in the visiting room of the penitentiary. And, oh, he's a scary dude. I'll say that, man. And from what Frank wrote about him in his book, like, oh, my God, I mean, Frank truly was afraid, Frank Jr., that his own father was going to have him killed. I mean, can you imagine that? Absolutely. There was some dysfunction in that family. And I think think that when you hear a lot of the details going on from her as an observer and what Frank wrote about, really see that Frank Calabrese Sr. was a very special kind of evil. And even a lot of the outfit guys were wary around him. So it's really a great story. Frank. Frank did a great job going into it, and I think we're trying to pick up where he left off and tell a really personal story as well. Yeah, I I think that's a heck of an idea. 
that there's not a lot of out there of the people that were really close to these mob guys. And I know I get calls and emails from mainly children, grown-ups now, but children or grandchildren even. One was a niece recently, and they just always are so confused about their relative. It's like they knew him as one person, but then they read about all this. They hear my podcast about him as another person, and the common theme is I just, I'm really confused. Could you tell me a little more about this person? And usually I can't really tell them much more personal stuff that they really would like to hear because these guys live these different lives. They live this one life out on the street and this other life at home. He may be scary at home when he gets mad, but he's still dad or brother or whatever at home. And it's just, it's a fascinating look at it, I think, from that viewpoint. I congratulate you for snagging her and getting her to convince to let you write her story. I'm really happy for you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think that's a good point. Try and leave the streets on the streets that a lot of these guys were pretty successful in doing, which is why their kids didn't know. And in this case, she didn't know what she was getting into. And Frank Calabrese Sr. was somebody who did not leave the streets on the streets. Oh, really? Wow. Quite a story. Wow. That will be a heck of a story. Well, we all look forward to that. You'll be hearing all about it. We'll have Cam back on telling that experience. Probably get you and her on and, Absolutely. and do, uh, talk about whenever the book's ready to come out. So tell you why Cam's on. I got a hold of him the other day. I, I happened to be looking at Facebook probably I don't even remember which page it was now. There's so many mob Facebook pages out there. And I saw a headline and it said something about a guy named Dominic Tadeo. And he had a plan to break the famous Carlos Lader, who was a Medellin drug smuggler, who was partners with Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar, he was going to break him out of Marion Penitentiary, which was the supermax at that time before Florence and Colorado. But he was going to hold him hostage until the cartels gave him like $10 million or something to send him back to Columbia. Now, what an audacious plan, man. What do you think, Cam? I think that that's probably one of the more creative <laughs> things I've heard to come out of the mob. I mean, Carlos Later was a character on the Narco series, and he himself was a lunatic. But yeah. for, for a mob guy in the United States to break somebody out of a, the Supermax, that's a stretch. But... If it hadn't happened, we wouldn't believe it. <laughs> well, <laughs> and they found enough. We're going to talk about it a little bit. They found enough evidence to realize this was a real deal plan. This wasn't just some kind of a pipe dream. Now, Carlos Leder is out of penitentiary now. He did 33 years. Might as well cut to the chase on that. Dominic didn't get him out. And you know what's interesting? He got released to German authorities because he was half German and he made right. a complaint that if he went back to Colombia, he would be killed, which is probably true. And he got to go to Germany. And then what I read said he's being taken care of by a German charity. I got a feeling that maybe he probably squirreled away enough money and funded this charity or something. I can't imagine that there's some charity that's taking care of him. He had dual citizenship because his father was German, hence the last name later. He was a billionaire. Yeah, so. he was, and he was one of the more notoriously brutal in that generation of narcos when they had the Medellin cartel. He had the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel going there at one time. And if you saw the movie Narcos, why well, you know a lot about him. And also, if you saw the movie Blow, he is the guy that George Jung was in the penitentiary with the first time he was in he meets this young colombian guy who he makes connections with this young colombian guy because george jung was a 
narcotics trafficker, but he was smuggling marijuana from, I think, from the West Coast back to Boston, if I remember right. Johnny Depp played the character, and he gets to know Carlos, and Carlos sees that this guy can help them get that cocaine from Columbia up to the United States back in the 70s when there's a little bit coming in, but not much. It was, I remember those days, it was like this designer drug that only rich people could get their hands on cocaine for the most part and and very little enforcement on it. And that's how they got their foothold because law enforcement didn't pay much attention to it. Heroin was kind of the thing that they paid a lot of attention to then and marijuana if it it was big enough. But Boy, these guys. And he connected up with George Jung, and George Jung, he showed them how to do it. And they even ended up buying a whole island called Norman Key down in the Caribbean and set that up as a transshipment point. Carlos built a $5 million house on Norman Key and totally under the radar of all law enforcement. Of course, in I think it was Jamaica or the Bahamas, I think it was Jamaica actually owned this island. So, you know, there's little to no law enforcement anyhow. And what there is, why he could easily, he could have bought the whole police department for just a, his walking around money down there, especially back then. So there wasn't going to be any interference from the local authorities. Jung ended up going on and testifying against him, actually. And I looked up George Jung and the Johnny Depp character, and yeah, he ended up spending the rest of his life in and out of custody. He got popped again after all this happened, and he got back out. He got popped again on another cocaine deal. Somebody set him up, really. He's trying to get himself back where he was, and he died of natural causes sometime in the last year or so, year and a half, I believe. But Carlos Lerner, we don't really want to talk anymore about Carlos. I'm just saying that for you guys, because I know you know it, but I want to remind you about how important a guy he was. And But we want to talk about Dominic Tadeo. You know, he was with the Rochester Moffley family, which started out as a crew of the Buffalo family. I didn't really realize. I never really thought about Rochester. Yeah, Rochester was kind of a weird setup. There was some people from Buffalo that was under Magadino, and then a subgroup from Pittsburgh came up, and the Magadino family was sort of falling apart, and Pittsburgh group sort of moved in and took over. They had a meeting and said, well, I guess Pittsburgh is going to take it now because Magadino group couldn't hold it. And these Pittsburgh guys ran it for a while, took over the Teamsters and the regular jazz had social clubs. For as small a place as Rochester was, they must have had seven or eight social clubs. And then in the 70s, what sort of precipitated all this is a bunch of crooked cops set up the whole top leadership, four or five guys, on a murder rap and put them all in prison. All the evidence was forged. Everything was bogus. And when these guys went to prison, they appointed lower-level guy to be the acting boss. So these guys come out of prison a couple years later and say, we want things back. This this lower-level guy, his name was Thomas DeDio, said, well, I got control now. I'm not giving it back. So the older level guys, they had a meeting. They beat the hell out of this guy and the lower tier guy and some of his men. The lower tier guy and his people decide, well, we're going to disrupt all operations. They begin bombing social clubs and gambling dens and they kill the old underboss. And the press labels these two teams, the A team and the B team. The A team is the upper level guys and the B team are the lower level guys. I guess in Kansas City, 
the A team would be the, the Sabellas, yeah. Sabellas, the B team would be the Sparrows. Damn, this is exactly like and my movie Brothers Against Brothers. It's the exact same scenario. The older guys and then the younger guys. They each had their teams. Like the younger guy, I know he was recruiting people to get on his team. That's how I found out about his team because he was trying to recruit non-Italians and half-Italians and just professional criminals, and they'll be more likely to talk to me as a local policeman. And so I started getting feedback that he was recruiting for his, and he really called it his team, basically. So that's an interesting parallel. Yeah, it was exactly like Kansas City. And so this B team, they started blowing everything up, getting dynamite, just like Kansas City, dynamite was flowing through that place like water. (laughs) (laughs) And they were... By this point, law enforcement's getting really involved because, you know, from personal experience, when things start blowing up and people start dying and shooting back and forth, it it draws a little attention in the press and in law enforcement. So the B team is keeping their dynamite in a bread truck parked at a gas station that suddenly the Fed and the law enforcement begin watching this truck. One guy sends his wife to go try and move it. (laughs) Oh, God. That's a good one. I've never heard that before. They won't watch her <laughs> until they realize her husband is a main guy yeah. after about 30 seconds. And <laughs> they pick up the truck and they get these guys. So the entire B team, they press charges and those guys are all sent to jail. The law enforcement, it was, again, as you know, good police work. They'd been getting these guys and informants. There were so many informants in Rochester. They just were all talking to the cops, and so the B team goes to prison. But while this is going on, the A team has this guy, Dominic Tadeo. He's a made guy with some gambling rackets, but he's a hitman. And Tadeo is he's going after members of the B team, and he kills the guy, reports back to the A team, and that was his first murder. But as a lot of the criminals in Rochester realize that the upper level, the A team is weakened, the upper level of the mob is weakened, they determine they don't want to pay street taxes anymore. They don't want to kick in from their gambling joints. They're not going to pay anymore. And the A-team decides they're going to go after these underlevel criminals. Their level criminals decide, well, hell, fight back. So we now have what's called the C-team. The C-team is going to fight these, which are the lower level criminals, the non-Italians, and they're going to fight back against the upper leadership. And so now we have three... The B team is gone and we have the C team. I mean, it's so are the days of our lives. Really, it's crazy. So today O finds more work killing members of the C team, (laughs) but he doesn't discriminate. He works with the C team also. He goes and he finds a capo in the A team. He guns him down, six shots. This guy, Thomas Murata. But Murata is a real trooper and he lives. And Murata suspects a member of the C team. So he has Tadeo, didn't know that Tadeo shot him. So he has Tadeo kill a guy in the C team. <laughs> in retaliation when Tadeo actually did it. <laughs> Correct. The C team then retaliates by paying Tadeo to shoot Murata again, <laughs> which he does, shoots him five or six more times, and Murata survives Are again. you kidding me? <laughs> See, I started reading some of this. I was getting dizzy from uh, the different gyrations. So they once again send Tadeo, the A-team, to kill one of the leaders of the C-team, 
Murata sees a guy who resembles one of the leaders, and it is instead one of his brothers who's not involved, and he kills this brother, the Torpy brothers, and he kills the wrong Torpy brother. (laughs) So today it was just back and forth and back and forth, just killing whoever asked him to be killed. And this whole time, law enforcement is watching everything. The Fed is listening to everybody. They've got their listening devices. More or less, there's informants everywhere between the informants and the police work and the listening devices, Teamsters getting wiped out, just the stupidity of the Rochester mob guys, the entire upper, lower, middle, every echelon of the Rochester mob is wiped out. Tadeo flees Rochester. He leaves his gambling aside. He's got a brother in Cleveland. He flees out west. He's on the run for a while throughout the 90s. And while he's on the run, He's gathering some guys together. He's a mob guy, so he's got contacts everywhere. And it's at this point, while he's on the run from murder charges, and he's got three bodies racked up and two attempted murders, it's while he's on the run that he determines that this would be a good idea for generating revenue. The Medellin cartel is making a ton of revenue in the late 80s, early 90s. And later has just been extradited to the United States. That sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> really. Before we go a little more into that, there's another story that I stirred up out of that when this Frank Valente ended up being the boss in Rochester. And then and then the late sixties and sometime in the early seventies maybe, there's a lot of law enforcement interest on them. Now, I don't know if you've read about this or not, but it was called the Columbus Day bombings. On Columbus Day, in order to deflect law enforcement interest, they wanted to give them something else to do. They planted bombs in two black churches, the Monroe County Office Building, the U.S. Federal Courthouse, and the home of a union official, and set them all off about the same time. And that was during the same time like the SDS was setting off bombs. They blew up a whole apartment building practically in Greenwich Village where they accidentally set off a bomb. And there was, I can remember some of these headlines that there was like three bombs went off, one at the front door of the Supreme Court, one in the uh, Capitol building and one in some other government building. And so they wanted to, the police and the FBI to think these were some kind of anti-Vietnam War protesters or maybe some kind of like the Black Guerrilla Army or something was operating at that time, uh, doing some bank robberies up in the northeast part of the United States. And they bought it, I guess, initially. They were going after them, really focusing all their attention. What's interesting is the same thing happened after 9-11 in, in real life. After 9-11, everybody that was assigned to organized crime practically, except a couple of people, just placeholders, if you will, went to the Joint Task Force on Terrorism. And a lot of them are still there, is my understanding. Uh, the organized crime isn't doing all that much. But as far as the old one squad here in Kansas City and the intelligence unit for the police department, after 9-11, that's where they all went. Hardly anybody was looking at the mob after that. They even did some more after that. Now, I guess they should have known that it was on Columbus Day. You know, somebody's got a sense of humor, wouldn't you say? <laughs> it really shows how ostentatious these Rochester guys were. Oh, my God. Think about Rochester. I remember when I got turned on to them a while back. I read a couple things, but the more I started looking, and I got this couple books by this author, Blair Kennedy, and you read about them, 
And really, they wiped themselves out, just blowing everything up, just lunatics. And like you said, even before they were at war with themselves, that bombing campaign, that's pretty, I'll say, creative. <laughs> yeah. a better, word. better word would be ballsy, but uh, <laughs> yeah. just head off a series of bombs all over town to distract attention yeah. from yeah. your operation. And the second time, they did three synagogues in the uh, judge's house, I think. Definitely three synagogues. Now, you know they're going to really... They're going to take out all the stops and pull everybody. I've been there. You pull everybody off everything else and stick it on this for a while. And so it was. And you look, they think there would be a black militia or like you said, the SDS. And then you bomb all these synagogues in the judge's house. Well, that's what the Aryan Nation and those kind of guys were doing back then. Really, really pretty sharp how they were spreading the focus. (laughs) They're creative. So Dominic Tadeo, I, I can't remember exactly how they got on to him. They were after him, I think they're in the late 80s, over some of these murders. And they found these lockers that he had rented. That's kind of how they got onto this whole scheme to free Carlos, is they found he rented lockers all over the Northeast, I think three or four of them. Right, right. And and he had like, he had $65,000 in cash in one, plus a you know, rifle, a silencer, other firearms, accessories, machine guns, sawed off shotgun. If we, oh yeah, I see now he had four machine guns, nine handguns in this one. And they found a key to it on him when they arrested him at the airport up in Cleveland. And they found that on him. But they had other information because they started linking him up to other lockers. So I see a, uh, there's a firearms dealer. Francis M. Golden was caught trying to enter the United States from Canada with a gun, and after he was arrested, he had papers on him that had a rental units that were actually listed on the papers to Dominic Tadeo. So they went into that, and they found another $100,000 in two of the four lockers that were connected to him. So this guy, he had socked away money and had a whole stash of guns. He was ready to go. Right, and I think it's, when you think about the kind of firepower he had and the guys he put together, it's easy to look back and say, well, prisons weren't the same then and, and maybe security, but to try and storm the most secure prison, yeah, the yeah. most fortified prison. I read some of those articles and a lot of the guys who work in the prisons are familiar. They were like, that never would have worked. There's nothing he could have done to storm the most maximum security prison at the time and yeah. get later out. There was just too much security, too many layers of concrete and steel. All they'd have to do is lock a couple doors or 15 doors. There was just nothing. There was was no possible way. And I believe even by that time, see, I got this guy interviewed, this skyjacker I interviewed, Martin J. McNally, and he and this other dude who is another skyjacker, all of a sudden I've lost his name, but they came up, they hatched a plan, and the other guy had an outside accomplice, and she, it was a woman, and she skyjacked, if you for want of a better term, a helicopter down in St. Louis. She hired this helicopter, told him she was a real estate agent. She wanted to go around and check out some properties for sale. And she pulled a gun on him and said, okay, head north to Marion, Illinois. <laughs> and so he gets up there and, and he actually, Martin tells a story and Martin and oh, this guy was called the, the Silver Fox. He, God, he was kind of a famous criminal back then. They had a yellow raincoat they were going to lay out, and it was in a yard that was right next to the main yard with the guard towers around it. So it wasn't, it weren't going to land in that main yard, but there was another open area 
just outside of the main yard that they had crawled over some roofs and were going to get down in that place and throw this yellow raincoat out so she would know where to have the helicopter land. So they're standing down there and they're watching that helicopter, you know, start to come in and all of a sudden it veers off and disappears and it seemed like it went down somewhere else. And Martin said, Mac, what did we call him? Mac. Mac said, you know, he said, I knew something had gone horribly wrong and I started running back up and got on that roof trying to get back down the yard and a guard caught me. An officer caught him as he was coming off that roof and took him into custody and caught the other guy too. And and of course, when they got down, they learned this, when they got them captured up later on that day, they learned the story that the helicopter pilot was a pretty cool dude. He'd learned his trade in Vietnam as most helicopters did of that time. Anybody after 1980 had learned how to fly a helicopter in Vietnam more than likely. So he told the gal, he said, just crack that door open a little bit so when we land, why, they'll be able to jump in a little quicker. And so she thought that was a good idea. And she laid the gun down and reached over to open the door. And he just reached around, grabbed the gun. And she then had other guns in a double bag. And she was going after one of those other guns in a double bag. And he just shot her. He shot her and killed her. He landed the helicopter outside the prison. And then she was easily tied back to the other prisoner that was with Mac that really hatched up the plot because she'd been coming and visiting him all the time. And this was after that, all the federal penitentiaries then started stringing some kind of wires up to keep helicopters from landing in there. So I'm not sure how they would ever thought they'd get into Marion. You couldn't, no way you could shoot your way in. Certainly very more than the local state trooper that had a report of shots fired at Marion. <laughs> One high wave trooper that's assigned to that area is not going to make that one. (laughs) They may come in close and start calling for help. (laughs) So I tell you, our friend Dominic Tadeo, I have to assume, I'm not sure if he's still alive or not, but he was sent to Marion. Actually, I see that after he got convicted of that, he was sent to Marion initially. He's probably old and dead now. Finally got there. Finally got there. (laughs) He actually he is in Florida right now. In March of this year, like so many mob guys around the country, he petitioned for early release based on his poor health mm-hmm. because of COVID. Oh. You know, a lot of these mob guys, there's mob guys, you know, Chicago guys, and Gaspipe Queso just died of, of COVID in, I want to say it was November of last year. Another swell guy. Yeah. But a lot of these mob guys are petitioning to get out. The hustle never ends. But today, O petitioned to get out. He said he had terrible health, this laundry list of, of health problems he has. And when they reviewed his record, they said, sure, if he's 75, however years old, he's up there. But he did not have any extraordinary health conditions. And so he was, he remained in custody. I want to say he's in medium security now in Florida. So at least he's in Florida where most of the mob guys retired to anyway. <laughs> In March of 2021, this year, he was denied early release. I think he can get out in 2024. He's eligible for parole in 2024. When he appeared in court, he acknowledged guilt, but he just walked in court. The judge says, well, you've got these three murders and two convictions. He just looked up the judge. He goes, guilty, 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 guilty. He just had that and just he just had that sneer. It was all he said. <laughs> he didn't have time for that. He's a mobster's mobster, isn't he? He's like John Gotti, you know. <laughs> we coast the doster till I die. <laughs> the 
way he was going back and forth and back and forth, and he shot the same capo who hired him twice. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> the guy lived both times. That's a hell of a story. That's a hell of a story, Cam. He built himself up in Rochester. <laughs> they ain't their Wheaties. I wonder what the state of the mob is in Rochester today, probably like everywhere else in the country. I think they're about done. One of their sons was running a bar or something in the 80s. That was the last I could yeah. find. I saw a federal agent who one time said that the Bonanno family's idea of a meeting is they all sit in a circle and shoot at each other. <laughs> I would say in Rochester, they all get together in a room and throw dynamite at <laughs> They call the cops and then throw dynamite at one <laughs> well, interesting. Well, that was a heck of a story, Cam. I appreciate your help on uh, research on uh, the Rochester mob and uh, Mr. Tadeo. It was a heck of a story. I don't know what uh, what else you got up planned in the future besides the TV show and your book. Got anything else that you're working on? I think for right now, that's enough. I'm excited about the book. I finally got an actual writing project and the show. We're seeing how it goes. I've been working with the Seifert Brothers. They've got a documentary coming out on the Reels Networks and then a couple interviews for that. So we'll see. Been monitoring that on uh, YouTube. There, that's a real, that's a real deal. Professional production. You know, I talked talking about those mob documentaries. I talked to Scott Bernstein. You know, he was one of the producers and was, of course, an expert on the white boy Rick. And it hit so big. It's really interesting. He said that it kind of just puts along for a while, and then all of a sudden it just hit. And it yeah. was the number one documentary on Netflix for a while. That's right. And, well, that movie was based on his work, too, when right boy Rick Right, came. right. Matthew McConaughey, I think, played that uh, part in that but they're doing a the top quality. They're putting the money into it. Scott told me a little bit about how much money they put into that. Plus, you got to buy the rights for all that music. I can't do all that. Mine are more financed on a budget. But these guys, when you put the money into it, it's and it looks to me like from what I've seen, they're posting on Facebook. They're putting some money into this thing. They got good red cam, what they call red cameras and booms and cars and period cars and a lot of good stuff for their reenactments. It's quite a production, and this group, uh, Octane, that, that puts it all together that I've been working with, and this director, James Enzo Forney, he's a hell of a guy. His team is absolutely incredible, and they really do great work. Glad to be working with them. Joe Siebert and his brother, Nick, they're really incredible guys with, obviously, an incredible story. And They're telling the story of the murder of their dad, Daniel Seifert, and it was Joy Lombardo and Frank Suisse that did that. He had a Teamster loan, I believe, for his business, and they were in there helping him run his business, so to speak. They were sort of trying to use it as a shell company instead of for a money-making business and laundering Teamster money all through yeah. it. And he got in some trouble, and the IRS wanted him to inform, and you know the mob doesn't put up with that. So yeah, they killed him in front of Joe Seifert, who was, I want to say he was four at the time, right in front of his wife, and yeah. Joe... And that was really a big thing when you kill a guy in front of his wife and kid. Which is unusual. I mean, I I don't know if I've ever heard of that. I know I've never heard of it in Kansas City. I don't know if I've heard of it anywhere else. There's a recording of Cork Svella. I was reading Bill's book, Bill Owsley's book, and Cork actually says, well, you know, that's, it's against the rules. You kill a guy in front of his wife. Oh, yeah. He was talking about killing uh, Spiro. 
maybe I don't know that it was Spiro, but it was, it was somebody in front of their kids. And, and Cork said, no, we, we can't do that unless it's, you know. Yeah, that's who it was. I'd forgotten about that. I'm glad to see that somebody's finally doing a recent, kind of more like a high production value documentary about the Chicago outfit. There's so many stories up there that need to be done. I almost want to go up there and do one myself <laughs> because there's just so many that need to be done. There's a lot of people up here that would really love to have you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let me get the one I have going about the 1946 election fraud by the mob and the political machine here in Kansas City done. We're almost done with that. but That's going to be incredible. The details that I've been able to find, and you couple that with Kansas City's role in getting the Chicago leadership out of prison after the after the, <laughs> yeah. the Hollywood scandal, Kansas City was so incredibly involved in really high level mob activity, reaching up to obviously the White House yeah. you know, was uh, really what y'all had going on. With something else. <laughs> yeah, that Attorney General Tom Clark that helped those guys that signed that order, he was really paddling backwards a lot of the time in this movie and trying to avoid any kind of federal look at this election crime here in Kansas City or the cover-up murder that they had. And he was finally forced to get the FBI into it. And even when they got into it, they then wouldn't go after the guy and use the guy that could tell them exactly what happened and tie it back to the mob hierarchy, the mob boss here in Kansas City, which then tied it back to political boss in Kansas City, which then ties directly back to the President of the United States. And then Clark ended up on the Supreme Court. And, and then he gets rewarded on this by going on the Supreme Court. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> All right, Cam, I appreciate it. We're going to get you back here sooner and later. I don't know. I'm, like I told you, I'm going through a bunch of changes right now here personally and moving and all that. But Get this movie done. I'm going to get back into podcast business a little more stronger here in the next six months or so after I get that movie completely done. All right, Cam. Talk to you later. All right, now, Gary. All right, bye. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. I just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and on my Facebook and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of y'all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And I also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and, and a drink and and uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal. But you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I ask for donations to help do my next documentary and a lot of you guys really responded big time and i've been able to pay people and it's going to have a little higher production values than what i've had before 
I'm getting really close to completing it. It's about Kansas City organized crime and politics. I have a title, finally. It's Boat Fraud Here Again, Politics and the Mob. And don't forget about my previous documentaries, Gangland Wire, Skimming from Las Vegas, and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. Both of those can be purchased or rented on Amazon. Now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and then I'll leave y'all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. Now I'm going to let you guys go, but first I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline, 800-873-8255, and then push one. Or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey.